The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Sure, it's good to be with you. I'm excited to look at God's Word with you. If you're here with us last week, you'll remember that um, the biblical, biblical authors were trying to persuade us about the events we call um, Christmas. They were trying to persuade us about this baby born, and they were trying to use evidence to show us that this baby is the promised king. They were persuading based, uh, as, as we saw in the beginning of Luke, Luke was persuading based on historical fact. He was saying, I've checked this out with everyone. And so he wrote Luke to his friend Theophilus to say, this is truth. Um, He's persuading with the truth. Christianity has always claimed to be based on historical fact. And so if that's true, then little more should be important to us than truth, right? For instance, one of the most important ethical commands for us as Christians is, thou shalt not lie. Why? Because because God is true, and he always speaks the truth, or, or our Lord said, I am the way. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. I am the truth. So, so truth is everything to us. Because truth is so important to us, I want to make uh, this claim today. So is persuasion. Because truth is so important to us, so is persuasion. So, so what is persuasion? Well, to persuade is to... It's to attempt to convince someone using solid reasoning or argument, right? You're trying to convince someone to believe something, and you have evidence for them to believe it. So persuasion is more than just being a nice person, and it's more than just telling someone about something. It's engaging with someone. It's trying to win their heart and their mind using reasons that are compelling, our memory verse for the month shows us the heart of a persuader. We looked at this last week. Can I get that up there? 2 Corinthians 5.11. We read this with me? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So we went over this in more detail last week, but the fear of the Lord is this awe you have for God. It's worship. And if you, if you love God, if you've got a heart for God, if you have a fear of the Lord, what are you going to do? Well, you'll have a heart for others to, to know God like this. And since Christianity is based on truth, you're going to need to do what? Persuade. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. When you have a heart for God, you'll have a heart for others, which will lead you to persuade. So you might be sitting here going, are you trying to convince me that I should give my life to Jesus because he's Lord and King? And I would say, yes. It's exactly what I want to do. The persuasion, it needs to be said, is not manipulation. I would, I wouldn't, we wouldn't want to force anyone to believe something. If you're forcing it, they don't believe it, right? It's not manipulation. It's not coercion. It's not domination. It's a presenting of ideas, of truth, open-handedly to your mind and to your conscience so that you would consider and go, hmm, and think about it. Hopefully, you would be persuaded, so last week we looked at what I called the ABCs of persuasion, which is kind of like four principles from Scripture on, on how to try to persuade. Uh, it's on the website if you miss it. Today I want to think with you about persuasion as intervention. 
Do you, do you know what intervention is? Some of you are like, oh, yes. I wish I didn't. Um, the dictionary says an intervention is an occasion on which a person with an addiction or other behavioral problem needs to be confronted by a group of friends or family members and attempt to persuade them to address the issue. So in an intervention, it seems obvious to everyone in the world, except the addict, that something is wrong. The addict probably knows deep down something is wrong, but he can't accept it. Why? It's because he's got such a deep desire to, con- to continue engaging in that behavior, right? So he kind of shuts himself off to reality. I want to do this so badly. I'll rationalize it. I'll make reasons for it. It's got to be okay. No, it's okay. Every- I'm fine. I can quit whenever I want. And so the community at some point, if they love him, they have to intervene and they try to bravely speak truth into the situation and persuade him that change is needed. Intervention, a loving intervention comes in with truth for the benefit of someone else. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this idea as Christian persuasion being intervention. So that raises this question. What is the awful addiction or problem a Christian persuader is attempting to challenge? What would you call that? What is, what is the obstacle we face in trying to persuade others that Jesus is Lord? Before I, before I put a name on that, I want to show you some examples. I'm going to give you a, a Bible story example, and then I want to give you a modern example. So because it's Christmas, right? We've got to tie this to Christmas somehow because it's December. Um, because it's Christmas, the, exam- the, the Bible example I want to give you is Herod. You've heard of King Herod, okay? He was the, uh, the king of Israel at the time of the birth of Jesus, but he was pretty much a puppet king for Rome who was the true power, okay? If you wanted to read about this, you'd read in Matthew chapter 2 where Herod receives a surprising visit from Babylonian scholars. And what do we call them? The wise men, right. So these Babylonian scholars travel an immense distance to come to Jerusalem, and when they arrive, they shock everyone, because here's what they say. They say, we've come to see the promised king of the Jews who's been born. And then they say, we want to know where he is. And so Herod is taken aback, the people are taken aback. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was what? Troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, they're quoting from the prophet uh, Micah, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." The first of all, be amazed that several hundred years before, the prophet says, I know where the promised king will be born. I mean, Bethlehem is a small little nothing neighborhood. That's where he's going to be born. So, but, but for our point here, these scholars come to Herod. They say, we want to know where the king's going to be born. Herod gets out the Bible and all the, the pastors and theologians says, hey, can you answer this? And they say, yeah, we know where. It's Bethlehem. Wow. 
So the wise men go, they find Jesus, they worship him, but they end up skipping out on Herod. Do you remember what Herod does after that? He has every baby boy in the whole neighborhood of Bethlehem killed. Now, now put these Put these two things in your mind together. Let's think about this. First of all, the scholars come and say, where's the king gonna be born? And what does Herod do? Gets out of the Bible, calls the scholars, looks for that. Hey, it's gonna be Bethlehem. The wise men go and they worship. The wise men worship, then they leave. What does Herod do? He kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem. I'm seeing a disconnect here. Are you sensing this disconnect? First of all, Herod lives in God's world, okay? And he seems to believe something about the truth of the Bible, the reality that there's a God in control of history who's promised to send the Christ, the promised king, and that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Now, that's a lot of reasons to do what the wise men did. What did the wise men do? They worshiped. They had evidence, they had reasons. They came and they worshiped. And Herod, believing some of this, he believes it enough to be concerned, he believes it enough to be upset, he believes it enough to go to Bethlehem and kill all the little boys. But he doesn't believe it. You guys, if it's God's word and it's prophecy, can it be stopped? If it's God's words and if it's God's word and this is the promised king, shouldn't he be worshiped? Because what, what does Herod do? He believes the prophecy enough to think there's a king in Bethlehem, but then he doubts it enough to think, I can kill the king. He, he believes it enough to believe that it's real and doubts it enough to try to stop it. Do you see this disconnect? Does that make any rational sense to you at all, that he's doing this? Of course not. Okay, why is he doing it? Why is he killing every baby in Bethlehem? Well, it's clear we know from Herod's life he was kind of paranoid about wanting to maintain his kingdom, killed his own sons. Here's Herod's agenda. I'm the king. I'm the king. God's not my king. No Christ is my king. I'm the king. I serve myself. And so even though he's rational enough to believe God's word and consider the prophecies, He's got such a strong agenda to be his own king that he'll deny the truth of God's word in thinking that he can stop it. Do you see the disconnect? Do you see the near addiction Herod has to himself? What do we call this? Biblical authors call this unbelief. It's a willful refusal to believe in God and his word due to a selfish agenda. Because see, God's in the way. I gotta move him out of the way. And I do that by rationalizing some other way of doing, rationalizing some other way of doing things. So unbelief, it's, it's not believing nothing. I don't think that's really possible. And unbelief is dependent on God's reality, so it believes some truth. But it has an agenda, so it suppresses the truth of God and his word and creates a false reality while still living in God's world. So there's always a disconnect. Are you catching on? Do you, do you see it? Unbelief. Now let me give you a modern example. In case you think this is just Bible stories, uh, I want to think with you a little bit about a guy named Aldous Huxley. Anybody uh, remember him? Do you have to read, what was it? Brave New World, do you have to read that in high school? Okay. Well, 
Um, he cared about freedom, obviously, if you read that book. Uh, I want to give you, he, he was an English writer, a novelist, a philosopher, and also kind of a well-known atheist. And I want to give you some of his quotes from a book by Os Guinness called Fool's Talk. So let me show you a few things that, that Huxley said. Look at the first one. Huxley says this, it's impossible to live without a metaphysic. Now, by metaphysic, he means like a worldview. You believe something, okay? You believe something about the world. That's what he's saying. It's impossible to live without a metaphysic. The choice that is given us is not between some kind of metaphysic and no metaphysic. It's always between a good metaphysic and a bad one. So here's what he's saying. Everybody believes something, and you should work hard to make sure you believe the truth, a bad one is irrational, it makes no sense. A good one is true, it's real. So do you, you agree with him? I do, I'm with him so far, absolutely. Everybody believes something. You should question what you believe. Is it true? Is it real? Great. He continues. Look at the wisdom here. He says, no philosophy is completely disinterested. So what he's saying is, when you think about what you're going to believe, nobody's totally objective. In fact, he says, the pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with a need, consciously or unconsciously, by even the noblest and most intelligent philosophers to justify a given form of social behavior, to rationalize the traditional prejudices of a given class or community. Okay, so just to back up, everybody needs a worldview. You gotta think about what you believe, and a good one is true. Is it true? A bad one would, would not be true. So let's, let's strive for truth, Huxley says. But then he also says, our efforts to find truth are a little tainted, a little crooked, a little disjointed. The pure love of truth is always mingled with the need to what? To justify a certain form of behavior. So see what's happening? I want to find truth, but I sure love doing this. And if truth gets in the way of what I love, well, I'll just need to doctor that a little so I can keep doing what I love. So you see what he's saying? There's a need to justify a behavior or to rationalize a prejudice. I see, I need to believe this. So I know I'm seeking truth, but actually I'm kind of doctoring truth to make it say what I want. That's incredible wisdom from this guy. So he's saying you should seek truth, but you should be careful about your presuppositions and things you want. Wow. Do you agree so far? I do. But now look at what he does. He ended up becoming, deciding to be an atheist and concluding that the world had no meaning. But he's one of the world's most honest atheists. Because look at this line. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none. And was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. And then he says, we objected to morality because, why? It interfered with our sexual freedom. So he's, admit, he's admitting that meaningless was not proven from facts. It was something he wanted very badly. And so he chose to interpret facts in a certain way to validate 
a worldview of meaninglessness. And he did that for the purpose or with the meaning of sexual freedom. So he's saying, he's admitting to you, I wanted to do whatever I wanted sexually, and so I needed a worldview that would rationalize that. The one I came to was meaninglessness. If it's all meaningless, then it doesn't matter what I do. Huh. And then he broke his own rules. Wasn't it he who said you need a metaphysic that's true, and you better watch out for the hidden agendas of your heart and what you want? And then what did he do? (laughs) He did it. Do you see a disconnect? He lives in God's world. He knows there should be truth, and we should think about it. He's wise enough to see that our hearts have agendas, and yet the disconnect. I need a world where the, the, meaning, the only meaning there is is I'm in charge of, of sexual morality, which is strange that he needs a world with that kind of meaning since he doesn't believe in meaning. And so he doctors the reality. Listen to this quote where he kind of sums it up. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants. For myself, no doubt as for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. This is a picture of unbelief. It lives in God's world, so it does believe some truth. But it suppresses God's truth due to a selfish agenda, and that means there's always a disconnect. We should seek truth in a world with no meaning. Why would you need to seek truth in a world with no meaning? Do you see the disconnect? Herod, I believe in prophecy, but I can stop it. The disconnect from unbelief. It's unbelief. That's our problem. That's our addiction. I think we've all been there. It's not just Herod or Huxley, is it? Do you have any unbelief in your life? I'm convinced every time I am not obedient to Scripture due to some reason or excuse I have, it's unbelief. God, there's a good reason why your word's not true right here, why it's not important. It's because I need to validate the fact that I want to or not Okay? It's my unbelief. And is there a disconnect? Yeah, a huge one. Matt, you're a pastor. You say all this great stuff about God in the Bible, but you don't believe it sometimes? Guilty. How about you? Unbelief. Paul says it's a problem for all of us. Look at Romans 1:18. I've got it on the screen for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's angry, justly angry. And why? What's, what's this core issue we have? Men who by their unrighteousness, what are those three words? Suppress the truth. We mess with truth. We twist it. We turn it. We're like a politician. Right, you ever get sick of politicians always spinning stuff for their angle, their agenda? It's like the American public feels like you can't even trust anything anybody says. It's all spin. Well, it's not just politicians who do that. It's, I, I do it, and you've done it. Come on, haven't you been in that argument with somebody you love, and they're pinning you down on something you did, and you're trying to squeeze out through any little corner that you can? You're bringing up stuff from 1983. 
that they might have done. You were tired. You had a hard day at work. You're blameless. You're justified. You're vindicated. No, you're wrong. But you're full of unbelief. You got a selfish agenda. You're going to spin it so that you look right. This is, this, is, this is what the Bible calls a sin nature. Spin the truth. And, and here's the core of what we do. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God. See, so what Paul's saying here is human beings made in his image, living in his world, we know truth about God. We know it. But, verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. So we don't want him to be God. But they became futile in their thinking. So there's the disconnect. It's a little crazy. It doesn't make sense. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images, idols. Do you see it? That's unbelief. Paul says we all know something about God. We know he's the creator, the first cause, the source of truth. Only he can be the source of personhood, of love, of meaning, of beauty. Only he can be uh, the source of justice or ethics. We know this, but we suppress it. We turn it. We twist it. We ignore it. We replace God with a God of our own making. We have an agenda. But because we still live in his world, there's always a disconnect. You guys, I think unbelief is the addiction that plagues us all, especially plagues those who have not come to Christ as Lord. And so therefore, back to this whole persuasion thing. Why do we need to persuade? Uh, I said last week, the world is not asking the questions we have answers for. You look for that passage in Acts where the jailer comes to Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's like, I know this one. (laughs) Believe in Jesus. So many of you, if somebody came up and said, what do I do to get saved from my sins? You'd be like, I got this. Believe in Jesus. But how many people are asking you that question? They don't have that question in their mind. They do not live in a metaphysic, as Huxley said, of a holy God, of his righteous law, who sent his son to save us freely by his grace as a gift so that you just repent and trust in him. And then you're filled with the spirit to live for him as his child. They don't live in that. So what do we do as Christians who love the Lord and are given this calling to spread the news and the glory of Jesus to the world. Do we just wait? Do we be nice people and wait till somebody comes and asks us how to be saved? How many people are you gonna talk to about the Lord if you wait like that? None. And so Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we what? We persuade, which means we intervene in the unbelief. We intervene in the unbelief. Um, it's not just non-Christians who need this, is it? One reason I'm so thankful for my wife is she, she, she will intervene in my unbelief. I am not living consistently, and she will gently show me <laughs> and tell me. And like, uh, like, in, like Aldous Huxley, I make a reason for myself. <laughs> but then, by the grace of God, hopefully I come around to the truth but we need to intervene in each other's lives, don't we, sometimes? Don't you tend to live with blinders on? You're going to do what you want, and that's what you're going to do, and you need community to be like, hey, that, that might not be, that doesn't fit with what it means to be a Christian. There's a disconnect. This, this, is, this is God's calling to you, not only for one another, but to the world. We're, we're called to make disciples. We're called to persuade others as best we can that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
and he resolves every need. So we persuade. So what I want to do now is briefly show you an example of Paul, our best example of persuasion probably besides the Lord Jesus, an example of Paul intervening in unbelief. Because if you're like me, you're like, you're, you're seeing, okay, this problem we have is unbelief. We, we willfully suppress some of God's truth, but we still live in God's world, so there's this disconnect. How do I intervene? How do I persuade? How do I do this? How do I take God's truth to that moment? Well, Paul's going to show us an example. So if you're with me in Acts 17, I hope you are. It's on page 926 in your chair Bibles. Um, Follow along with me. I'm not going to go through every detail, but I think we can see three principles or strategies Paul uses to persuade, to intervene in unbelief. Now, first, look with me at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Uh, Where is Paul, as you see in the heading there? He's in Athens. So this is like the philosophical headquarters uh, for Greek thought. So Acts 17, 16, it reads, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was, what's that word there? Provoked. He's, he's deeply bothered because he sees that the city is full of idols. So he's seeing all the false gods, the false worldviews, the false realities that own these people, and he's torn up about it. And you remember that memory verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we what? We persuade. Paul is provoked that these people are so lost, and so he's not just going to be like, dear God, help them. He's going to go into the heart of where they talk about, where they have their debates, and he's going to try to persuade using the truth of God's world. So you see down now in Acts 17, 22, kind of his first strategy strategy for persuading. So look at verses 22 to 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of, that, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with its inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. What is it that he does first? What's, what's that first line about? Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. I see it like this. He's appreciating common ground and building on it. Common ground. They live in God's world. What are they doing? What is this whole street lined with? Temples and idols. So what do they want deeply in some way? They want to connect with God. They want to worship. They've even got something there for the unknown God. There's this God out there, we don't know about him, but we want to give him some some credit. So Paul, instead of just being like, ah, you dumb idol worshipers, dumb idol worshipers, gosh, you guys are stupid, don't you know? Paul doesn't talk like that because he knows he, apart from God's grace, is just like them. Just like them, okay? His life was dominated by unbelief. And so he comes in and he can, he can always find the good, the common ground, and he can build on it. You guys care about the big questions in life. You, you care about connecting with God. I am so with you on that. That's right. I even see you've got this idol to an unknown God. You, you know there's more that you haven't quite grasped yet. Wow, that's awesome. Can I tell you about him? 
appreciating common ground, building on common ground. That's massive. It's called being humble. It's called being friendly. And it's a way to persuade. This is not manipulation or domination. We actually, truly want to win people's hearts and minds with a sincere message of the truth. And that means we're, we're genuine and we're real and we can appreciate the good about God's world anywhere. So, hey, I'm an appreciating, I'm building on common ground. That's the first thing we do. So what's the first step to persuading? Because every one of you is going to be a persuader, right? So what's the first step? Appreciate and build upon common ground. There's always common ground. You might say, hey, I, no, it's an atheist. I have no common ground. Oh, there's common ground. Atheists are so mad at religious people for all the evil things we've done. You ever talk to one of them? That's just so common for me. That's, that's my experience. Can you join them in that, in being mad at all the evil religious people have done? Yeah, me too. You're right. It's evil. I'm with you on this. I'm with you. Build on common ground. Appreciate what is good. Second, question the disconnect between their unbelief and the reality of God's world. Now, it's a little difficult to see how Paul does this here quickly, but we'll do our best. Look at verses 24 to 25. So I'm going to tell you about this unknown God you don't know about, right? That's what he said. Now in 24 to 25, he says, let me tell you about the one God. There's a God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, okay? This God is capital G, God, over all this stuff we're doing here. And we know this because he made everything, ultimate cause. If you make it, you own it. If you make it, you define it. If you make it, you're lowered over it. That's huge. Our God made everything. We can't have knowledge or truth or relationship or meaning or purpose without knowing the creator. He's the first cause. Our God made everything. He doesn't need us like these idols. He doesn't live in any of these temples. He's the source of life and truth. Great. Then he sets this up. Verse 27, God's been in charge of everything. I'm going to skip all that. For verse 27, what's the point? That they should what? Seek God. You should seek above all things the ultimate God, the God who made everything. That's priority number one. Do you know him? Do you know the creator God, the one who's Lord? We should seek him. Then he says this in verse 27. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. Now, look at verse 28. For, and then you see a quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Do you know who Paul is quoting? I don't either. I forgot his name. But I do know this. He is one of their philosophers. He's one of their writers. He's like a Aldous Huxley, and he says, even your guys say God is imminent among us. Uh, He gives us life. He enables life. Then he does it a second time in verse 28, 28. Even as some of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Isn't this amazing? Who's Paul quoting to this audience? He's quoting their experts. Because they're still made in the image of God, they live in God's world, they're going to believe some truth. And he's saying, just like your experts say, there's one God who gives us all life, we should seek him. In fact, we are his offspring. 
So, so Paul is still building on common ground. He's quoting their philosophers. And then here he's going to question the disconnect. Verse 29 is where he does it. Because remember, what did he see when he went into the city that bugged him so much? Idols provoked him. He wants him to know Jesus. And so he's built on common ground. I'm glad you guys are worshipers. Then he's continued going. He's quoting their scholars. Well, we, should, we should seek the ultimate God, the creator God. And now he says this in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, what did you say about this whole street and all its temples and idols? You won't find God here. That's kind of bold, isn't it? But he's done it gently. He didn't walk down the street with a sign and say, you pagan idol worshipers, you're going to burn. He said, I appreciate how you guys worship and your passion for it. You know, some of your own authors have said, there's an ultimate God. We should seek him. Uh, in fact, we're in his image. If we're the image of God, why would we think little gold statues we make are where we find God? Why, if we're God's offspring, why would we think that little things we make is how we worship? What is he doing? He's questioning their disconnect. The place where it doesn't fit. The place where it doesn't work. Build on common ground, question the disconnect between the truth they know and the truth they suppress. And then number three, now he's bringing it home. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Number one was appreciate and build on common ground. Number two was question the disconnect. Number three, challenge and resolve the disconnect with the person of Jesus. So you see the challenge, right? He's commanding everyone to repent of idol worship because verse 31, he's gonna judge the world. And what's the standard by which he's gonna judge the world in this verse? Really, it's who is the standard by which he's gonna judge the world? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a? By what? By a man he has appointed. There's one man Who's the standard for how God will judge the world? Well, that's quite a claim. Why would you believe that? Why would you have any assurance that there's one man by whom God is going to judge the world? Do you see it? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He doesn't say, hey, just believe in Jesus. He says, you should believe in Jesus. Why? Jesus rose from the dead. That's our kicker right there. That's the ace in our sleeve. That changes everything. If, if somebody asks you, why do you believe in Christianity? What would you say? Yeah. 
you could go, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to know. You, you could say, well, it's changed my life. I think that's valid. That's a valid point. It's changed my life. Um, have you ever thought this out if somebody asked you, why do you believe Christianity? How many of you would be like, uh, because, I don't know. <laughs> think that, why do you believe it if you believe it? Why don't you believe it if you don't believe it? You should know this. The, the linchpin for the Christian is Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. There is, that, that's, what the, that's what the apostle said. We saw it. That's what the beginning of Luke says. Hey, Theophilus, I want you to have assurance regarding all these things because I collected this information from crowds of witnesses. This is what Paul said last week in front of the governors. You, you know this happened. This didn't happen in a, in a cave. This happened in crowds. There's evidence, good evidence, Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, this is the standard for how God's going to judge the world. Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul is challenging the disconnect, but also resolving it through Jesus. Again, what do they want to do? Why do they have all these temples? Why do they have all these idols? Trying to connect with God. In a way... Who's the ultimate idol? A picture of God by whom you connect with God and are made right with God. Isn't that Jesus? God in the flesh? And not only that, Jesus undoes all their idols. All the idols say you have to do all these things. I mean, this was slavery to worship these gods. You have to hope you made a God happy with you, so you sacrifice your kid or you give a lot of money and you're just trying to make him happy, but don't forget the other gods because they might not be happy with you if you have a favorite God. It's very oppressive. And what, is, what does Jesus do instead? Paul doesn't get here in this conversation because he gets interrupted. But what did Jesus do for you? Is Jesus holding back going, well, I might let you close to the Father. I don't know. We'll see if you deserve it. Or is, or is Jesus doing everything possible to bring you to the Father because he loves you. I mean, the idols all say, you have to do something. And Jesus says, I did it. The idols all say, you're not good enough. Jesus said, I paid for it. Jesus is not only the challenge to the disconnect, he's the resolve to the disconnect. They want to worship. They don't know how due to unbelief. Jesus fixes it, heals it, enables it. So if you're persuading, you appreciate and you build on common ground. Second, you question the disconnect. Third, you challenge and resolve it with the person of Jesus. Do you see what he did there? I'm gonna close with this. I wanna give you a modern example. This is gonna be too simplistic because anytime you're persuading with somebody, Right? It's a back and forth. It's a conversation. It's a relationship. It never goes like, oh, here are the four things. And they're like, you're right. It's not real. So I'm going to give you this, and it's too simplistic. But that's because this is a sermon, and I have a couple minutes left. But maybe it will help you see, oh, okay, that's how this works. Because knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade. That's what we do. Which means if you're going to be persuaders, we have, a, we have to have a clue as to how. 
In a major way we do it, we've seen this again, what? Affirm and build on common ground. Look for common ground. There's always common ground. Things you both believe. But there's gonna be, because, because the unbelief suppresses the truth, they live in God's world, but they suppress some of the truth, so there's gonna be a disconnect. So you find that disconnect and you question it. Help them think about it so they'll seek truth. And then you challenge and resolve that disconnect with the person of Jesus Christ. So if we tried that in today's world, let me ask you this question. You know, in Athens, they had streets of statues and idols and temples. Uh, Maybe we don't do that in the same way. What would be the idols of our culture? You could probably make a long list. A long list. There are some. Think about it. Here's, Here's one I'm picking up everywhere. It's what I would call the autonomy of the self. Does that sound too intellectual? It, it just means self is the authority, okay? It's, um, if it feels good, do it. How do you know what you should do? I feel like I should do it. And since I'm the authority, I should do it if I feel like it. What I want, my desires, that is the end, that is the goal, that is the glory. Me, I decide. Okay. Now, some of this comes from, if we had the time, we could, we could walk through a little bit of history and see how it was Christianity that actually brought to the West a concern for the individual. It used to be all just communal, and you were born in your place, and you had to stay there. Um, and part of believing that you're justified by faith, what does that do to the individual? You, you can't just join a, you can't just have me throw holy water on you, and then you're you're saved. No, actually, your mind, your heart needs to make a choice. And that actually gives you great dignity. You matter, not just the, the crowd. It's not just the, the sheep. It's you as an individual, every individual made in the image of God, you matter. So that's good, right? That's beautiful. We could affirm that as common ground, the importance of the individual. But it's gone so far that now it's well, my choices, my desires determine reality, autonomy of the self. So what if we question the disconnect? I'm going to quote, quote a lady who is a professor at the University of Toronto. Um, look at what she said here. Okay, the background here is, right, due to our individualism, we care about human rights. Our culture cares a lot about human rights. Um, the rights of the individual, and that's good. We could affirm that. But look what, look what the professor says here. Although I believe that values are what? Socially constructed rather than God-given. So let's just pause. Values. How do we know how to treat people? Ethics. How do we know what's right and wrong? She says, those aren't from God. How do we get them? Socially constructed. That means our culture that we're in creates these values. So for her, there's not a universal source of value. There's just, well, this group says this, and this group says this, and this group says this, okay? So if you believe that, if you believe values are socially constructed, is it right for me to impose the values of my culture on the values of another culture? No way. It's like the cardinal sin, right? Um, That means all these cultures are equal, 
Well, that sounds great and tolerant and progressive. Doesn't it sound awesome? Except there are some countries where women can't drive. But their culture is just as good as ours. Right, ladies? Aren't you progressive, open-minded? How can you judge their culture? Look what she says next. I believe the values are socially constructed rather than God-given. Then she says... I do not believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality, despite repeated efforts to pass it off as culture-specific custom rather than as an instance of injustice. (laughs) Okay? So what is she saying? Even though values are socially constructed, everyone should have my value of gender equality. That, my friends, is what we call a disconnect. It's a disconnect. She lives in God's world. What could we affirm? She cares deeply about justice, about values, about gender and racial equality. Amen. Genesis 127, made in the image of God, male and female. Yes, yes. Concern for the poor. Yes, we affirm. But there's a disconnect. Now we, what do we do with the disconnect? We question it. So if like, imperialism is wrong, if dominating other cultures is wrong, why do you think it's okay to take our socially constructed values and and force them on another culture? That's a disconnect. But she says, no, we should. It should. It should be true everywhere. Well, okay, now if we've affirmed and built on common ground, question the disconnect, how do we challenge and resolve this need with the person of Christ. Okay, well, first of all, we challenge like this. You can't have values that work for everyone unless you have an ultimate value giver to whom we all must answer, right? You just can't. Otherwise, it's my opinion, your opinion, strongest wins. The only way for there to be true justice, true ethics, is is to have the just one who has given a law to which we must all submit. You can't have real ethics without the creator God. And then if we began to resolve it, we would see, you know, what is this pain, right? There's so much injustice in the world, everywhere. People treated horribly everywhere. Well, Part of the Bible's answer to that is we've all sinned, we've all rebelled, we've all got some unbelief. And the wages or consequences of that has been death on an epic scale. And part of that is is, uh, injustice. But, but, there was a baby born in a manger. Who is this guy? He's the promised king. And he came and he lived in this world of injustice with us. In fact, he endured the ultimate injustice himself on the cross. He knows what it's like. But he rose from the dead and he reigns. And right now he has a people, even though we don't look like it the way we should, who have trusted in him, and we're forgiven for the injustice we've committed, 
and we're loved by his grace, and now we want to work for justice. And we have these new, we have new motives and new powers to where um, not only do we see we have truth in Christ, but we also have grace, the ability to forgive, uh, and the ability to keep going when it's hard, because it's his love that enables us. You see, the only way to live and work for justice in this world is when you know the Lord Jesus. He is justice. He's done justice for us, making us right with God. And one day he'll return, and justice will be done. The need for justice resolves in Jesus. Do you see that? That was a simplistic effort, but it's true. Let's sum it up. Knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? Persuade others. So maybe you're not yet persuaded. That's okay. We love you. We're so glad you're here. Uh, I'd love to help persuade you about Jesus. Second, for, for all of us, don't we always need new growth and being persuaded of the reality of Jesus? I do. I need to be encouraged all the time. But being persuaded of who he is, let's remember our call to be persuaders. And the enemy is unbelief that lives in God's world but suppresses his truth. And so persuasion, lovingly, humbly, intervenes to reveal the disconnect. And we do that by appreciating and building on common ground. We do that by questioning the disconnect and then challenging and resolving the need of that disconnect with the person of Jesus. He's, he is the way he is the truth. He is the life in every situation. I hope you are persuaded. Now let's go out and persuade. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess our unbelief, our disconnect, our hypocrisy, our inconsistency. Forgive us. Forgive us. And we're so thankful for the grace and truth revealed in your son that you've loved us. You have loved us, even in our sin. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, as we look to Jesus and trust in him, we'd be reminded of that love again. We're forgiven. We're brought near. We're made new through Jesus and what he's done. Thank you. And Lord, persuaded of this, we don't just want to sit around and be nice people. We want to, we want to persuade so, Lord, help us, honestly, genuinely, with sincerity, never to manipulate anyone or pressure them, but to present an open statement of the truth and uh, to affirm and build upon the common ground we share as people made in your image and to question the disconnect, the places where we're suppressing the truth and find them resolved in Jesus so that our knees can bow to him in joy and say, he's king, he's Lord, He's Savior. We pray this for his glory. It's, uh, it's in his name we pray as well. Amen.